Father, we thank you for your grace to us and your mercy, God. Even, God, when we fall apart. Uh, God, I thank you that you are patient with us when we, uh, God, when we have a meltdown, when we, um, when we get discouraged, when we get depressed. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to respond rightly to um, the struggles of life, um, to the parts of life that don't, don't go exactly as we think they ought to go. Father, I pray that you would um, open our hearts today, God. I pray your Holy Spirit would grab hold of each person and, Lord, that you would speak your truth into their life. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you remember the context of where we're at in the book of Kings, the first Kings, uh, we're talking about the prophet Elijah. We first talked about him a couple weeks ago in chapter 17 when we saw he comes on the scene and he confronts the, pro, the, the, I'm sorry, the king, Ahab, about the idolatries of Israel. Okay? The people of God have begun to worship Baal. They've begun to, to pull away from the true God. They've begun to give their affection and their heart and their attention to something that was not God. And, and so, so Elijah confronts Ahab on that, and he basically says, it's not going to rain until, until I come back and tell you that it's going to rain. So there's going to be a drought upon the nation of Israel, upon the people of God, until they turn away from their idolatries. And so Elijah from there goes and hides in the wilderness. Remember we looked at a whole sermon just on how God provided for him through ravens and through the, the widow of Zarephath, miraculous ways in which God provided for Elijah. And then last week we saw in chapter 18, God tells him to go back to Ahab, to go back to the king and to tell him, all right, we're going to settle this deal about who's the true God. And so they call all the people to Mount Carmel and they have basically a whose God is real contest. Okay. And the God that answers by fire is the God that's real. And so the prophets of Baal, they set up their altar and they get their sacrifice on their altar. And then they have a little Baal worship service, you know, lots of dancing, lots of singing, lots of chanting, lots of cutting themselves, bleeding all over, wasn't very sanitary, you know, nothing happens, not, not even, not even a spark, not even a skiff of smoke, you know, I mean, nothing, not, Baal, Baal does not answer because Baal is not real, there's only one God, and so nothing happens, Elijah then, it's his turn, he repairs the altar of God, he repairs the sacrifice, place of sacrifice for the people of God, and then he prays, he douses the thing with water to make sure they understand that this is not a trick, and then he prays, and the God of heaven answers by fire. Now, we're not talking like a little spark. you know. Hey, did you see that? No, no, no. This thing, fire, comes from heaven. It consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the stones, consumes the dirt, you know, licks up the water. I mean, this is clearly a powerful manifestation of God in front of everybody, okay? And all of a sudden, the people fall down on their faces, and they begin to say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There's great repentance in Israel. You know, Elijah takes the 450 prophets of Baal to the brook Kishon and slaughters them there. They're all executed. So all the prophets of Baal are executed. The Lord has shown himself mighty. The, the, the people of God are chanting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. It is a great day, okay? And, and I really think that Elijah felt like, wow, you know, what a day, man. God finally answered. Yeah, after three and a half years of, of being in the wilderness and, and, and on the run and having to trust God for his daily provision, finally, you know, the, the people of Israel know the Lord is God. Finally, this whole idolatry thing is over. Finally, this whole Baal worship is over. Finally, you know, he can live back in the city and he can be the prophet of God to the people of God. And there's just this great sigh of relief over Elijah. And he just, the, the whole letdown of his, his adrenaline and his emotions, and then before he even gets his shoes off, you know, he's, he's gone into his room, he sat down, he turned on Fox News, knock on the door, 
He opens the door. It's a messenger from Jezebel. Remember who Jezebel is? Jezebel is Ahab's wife, the queen, okay? And here's the message. All right, buddy, before 24 hours is up, you're a dead man. I'm, you're gonna be murdered. I'm gonna have your life, okay? And Jezebel is serious about this. She'd killed people before. Uh, she'd had people killed before. Remember, remember, we'll, we'll see more about that later on as we work through the, the times of the problem. But, but, but she threatens his life. Now, what happens next is a really interesting thing, okay? Uh, if you notice in verse 4, Elijah runs. I'm sorry, in verse 3, he runs away. He, he rises. He runs out of his house. He runs out into the wilderness, and, and he sits down under a tree, and, and he asks God to take his life, and he quits, okay? He quits the ministry. He quits being a prophet. He's he got him done, okay? Now, <clears throat> probably you can identify with, with what just happened there. You, you know what we might call that today? <laughs> You know, if, if doctors came on the scene while he's under the broom tree and, and he's all, you know, he's quit everything, he's done, you know, he's, he, he doesn't want to live. You know, you know what the doctor would probably diagnose him as? Depressed, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the word we use for that? Okay, so you might say he's depressed. You might just say he's despairing. That might, how you, might be how you describe that. You might describe it as a meltdown. Anybody ever have a meltdown? I've heard people describe it that way. Well, I had a meltdown today, you know, and I just quit everything, and now I got to go back to my boss and tell him I didn't really want to quit, you know. Maybe a breakdown, you know. He fell, But he falls apart, okay? And so no matter what you call it, that's what happens. Elijah just literally falls apart, okay? Now, now why, why does this great prophet of God fall apart? Lots of different reasons. I, I think, first of all, I think he was completely caught off guard. You know, I, I think in his mind, this deal was done. You know, I mean, victory, right? It's over. You know, I, I don't got to struggle anymore. God's come through. Man, it's, it, the people aren't going to worship Baal anymore. And then all of a sudden, there's this knock on the door. And I don't think he ever expected any more resistance. You know, one of the things he underestimated, and this is something that we, we've got we to we remember as Christians, is that, that many people, it's not an issue of information for them in their life. It's an, it's an issue of heart, okay? You know, a lot of times we like to think that people live a certain way simply because they don't have the right information. You know, that's not true, is it? You know, I mean, we assume that, well, you know, people wouldn't live in that sin if they had the right information. If they knew what God said about that, if they knew what the Word of God said about that, well, they wouldn't live that way. That's not true. You know, a lot of times we, we think people, pe- people don't follow God simply because they don't know about God. You know, that's just not true. It's a heart issue, okay? People don't love Jesus because of a heart issue. People live in sin because of a heart issue. There's a great passage in Luke. We looked at this with in our Team Kid program actually this week. Luke chapter 16, and the story is about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And both of them die. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. And at this point in time, I don't think it's this way in the future, but at this point in time, they can actually talk to each other. And the guy in hell cries across the great chasm to the Lazarus and Abraham who are in heaven. And he asked two things. Number one, he asked that, 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 that they would send somebody over with, with a drop of water on their finger to dip it on his tongue that he, that he might have some relief from the agony. And the second thing he asked, and here's the thing I want, I want you to focus on, is he asked that, that Abraham would send Lazarus back to earth, to his house, because he has five brothers. And he says, you know, send him back there so that he can tell my brothers about this place so they won't come here. In other words, he says, man, send, send, send this guy back so that my brothers don't make the same mistake that I did. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? Abraham says, no. <laughs> Look in verse 29 of Luke 16. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What, what are Moses and the prophets? Well, that's the word of God. So Abraham basically says, no, no, no. I don't need to send somebody back. They, they have the word of God. They have the word of God to warn them. They have the word of God to tell them to, to, to follow Christ and, and to obey God and, and, and not to come to this place. 
But the guy responds back in verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And in verse 31, he says to him, Abraham says to him, no, neither will they, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now that, that's a huge statement, isn't it? He's saying, look, it doesn't matter if Lazarus comes back from the dead and tells them about hell and about, <clears throat> about the judgment of God. It's not gonna make any difference. You know why it's not gonna make any difference? Because obedience is about the heart. Right? It's about the heart. Jesus told a great parable in Matthew 13 that teaches us about this. It's of a guy who's sowing seed. Remember that parable? Parable of the, of the, <clears throat> of the sower? And, and, he, and he sows seed like on, this, on, the, on the pavement, okay? And then he sows it on, on the, the thorny ground. And then he sows it on the rocky ground. And then he sows it on the good ground. Remember? And, and each one of those is a picture of different people's hearts, okay? And, and, and if, if you have a person whose heart is the pavement, okay? Have you ever tried to plant your garden out in the street? You ever try that, you know? Take your, your cucumber seeds and your tomato seeds and everything. Go out in the pavement, you know, put them on the pavement, walk. Them. You know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. You know why? Because it's too hard. And Jesus says some people's hearts are that way. And it doesn't matter if they have the right information. It doesn't matter if they have the truth. That It's not going to sink in. Okay? Jezebel was one of those people. It wasn't a matter of her having the right information about whether Baal was God or the Lord was God. She didn't want to serve the Lord. You know why she didn't want to serve the Lord? She wanted to do what she wanted to do, okay? She, she wanted to live the way she wanted to live. She doesn't care what the Lord says. She doesn't care what the word of God says. She's gonna do what she's gonna do. And, and, and so the whole fire from heaven thing didn't impact her at all, you know? She just, it just ticked her off, you know? And she's just ready to kill Elijah now because he killed the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah does not expect that. And, and, and isn't it amazing, friends, how, how easily, how, how vulnerable we are to our faith going in the ditch real quick. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm amazed at, at how one frustrating phone call, how one unexpected bill in the mailbox, how one careless word spoken by a friend, how one unexpected temptation can really knock, knock us in the ditch. Right, right quick. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen people walk into church, you know, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, ready, ready to receive the word of God and to speak the word of God, and one careless word by somebody else, and all of a sudden they're ready to quit everything. Isn't that, isn't that amazing how, how fragile that we can be, you know? I mean, it just teaches me how desperately we need to cling to God, how desperately we need to be in the word of God, how desperately, because we, our faith can quickly go in the ditch, all of us. You say, not me. How can you say not you when Elijah, it happens to him, you know? I, I, I mean, I mean uh, in chapter 18, he's on the Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven. In chapter 19, he's running for his life, hiding under a tree, asking God to kill him, okay? Th those two instances are not very far apart. And, and, and so we see that we, we're fragile people. Now, now, notice what happens here. After the knock on the door and the death threat, it says in verse three, he was afraid and he rose and he ran. Okay, those three things. He was afraid, he rose, and he ran. We're gonna deal with he was afraid in just a minute. Actually, we're gonna deal with it all throughout the sermon. We're gonna be coming back to that, that whole issue of fear. But I want, I want you to do it right now with he arose and he ran. Now, that's significant because of what's not there, okay? So picture it. There he is sitting, knocking on the door. Hey, you're a dead man by tomorrow. You know what the scripture says? He got up. That's what it means he arose. He got up and he runs, okay? You know what he didn't do or what it doesn't tell us he did anyway? He didn't pray. <laughs> he didn't ask God, okay, God, what are you doing here? Okay, God, what's your plan here? Okay, God, what do you want me to do? Okay, God, where should I go? None of that happens in the, 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 the thing that, 
amazes me about that is Elijah is a guy who is known for his prayer, okay? Remember, remember last week in James chapter five where we looked at, at verse 16 where it says the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. And then verse 17 of James five says Elijah was just such a man. He had a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and it didn't rain. Then he prayed and, and it, I mean, it gives Elijah as the, as the poster child of a man of prayer. And yet in this particular instance, he doesn't pray. You know what he does? He responds out of emotion. He responds out of fear. He responds out of fatigue and out of exhaustion and out of frustration and out of disappointment and out of despair. And friends, whenever you respond that way, you are most likely gonna do the wrong thing. That's a great lesson for me. Just, man, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't respond out of that. We have to be real careful. Man, especially in the church, friends, we gotta be real careful. A church can be derailed because somebody responded out of discouragement, out of frustration, out of anger, and not, and not out of what, what God wanted them to do. You can really mess things up. Man, we got the holidays coming up, okay? That means you're going to your in-laws, all right? Are you ready for that, huh? Are you ready for that? And, and, and you guys have been in families before. Maybe your family's perfect. I don't know, but I know my family's not. And man, it, things get tense sometimes. And you know what? Families can really be messed up by somebody responding, not out of what God wants them to do, not out of faith, but out of, out of discouragement, out of frustration, out of irritation. Man, don't respond that way. I mean, I, I see this, I see you guys doing this on Facebook sometimes, you know? And, and I'm like, I mean, I know, I know that person wouldn't respond that way if they had stopped and said, all right, Lord, what do you want me to put out public here? What do you want me to tell the world? Lord, I, I'm, I'm a professing believer in Jesus Christ, and when the world looks at me, they should see Jesus, and I'm his representative, and so God, what should I, what should I respond here? Don't, don't respond out of, out of emotion, I think Elijah does that. Verse three, he's afraid. What's, what's fear? It's an emotion. Does he stop and say, okay, God, what are you doing here? No, he doesn't. He just gets up and runs. He gets up and runs. Well, why is he discouraged? I mean, you'd think overall things are pretty good. Yesterday, what happened? Well, you know, fire came from heaven, you know, burned up the sacrifice. Everybody said the Lord, he is God. We killed 450 prophets, but it's a pretty good day, you know? But why is he discouraged? Well, I, a couple things here. Num- number one, I, I, think, I think persistent struggle is a difficult thing. I, I really feel for some of you who deal with daily pain. Um, I, I don't. Um, it, it's actually, something's happening. I'll be 40 here pretty soon. And I noticed something the other day. I laid down on the floor. I'd, I'd, I think I'd been out riding my bike or whatever. And I laid down on the floor. And I, was, I think I was playing with the kids or something. And, and I went to get up and... Is hard <laughs> for just a second. I thought, uh-oh, it's coming, it's coming. But some of you, some of you live with pain. You know, you got you got something. You know, man, that's hard. Don't underestimate the 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 toll that can take on you. You know, just chip away, chip away. You, you know what Elijah has dealt with? He, he he's had a good day. Okay, we we should we should acknowledge that. But you know what? He's had three and a half years of daily having to depend on God for everything. You know, he not knowing where his next meal's coming from. I mean, literally having nothing. Okay. 
He, he, was out, he was out at the brook chair, nobody with him. Ravens would come in daily to feed him. And then he's with the widow at Zarephath. Every day they've got this much flour and this much oil, not enough to feed them all. And then they just got to trust. I mean, the pressure of daily just trusting God, trusting God, trusting God, dealing with this idolatry, you know, dealing with the, with the Baal, worships, were Baal worshipers, dealing with Ahab and Jezebel, trying to kill him. I mean, he's had that for three and a half years. And, and I just think people, that affects people. I mean, we, we should just acknowledge that. That affects people. Number two, I think there is a lack of expected results, okay? Disappointment, disappointment can be hard to deal with. Notice what he says when he, when he runs out in the, in the wilderness here in verse four. He says, he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness, came down, sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Listen to this phrase. I'm no better than my father's. I'm no better than my father. Why does he say that? I'm no better than my father. He's discouraged, isn't he? He's saying, it was a failure, God. You know, I really thought that this was it. I really thought that we were going to get Baal worship out of Israel. I really thought the people of God were going to turn, you know. But, man, no sooner I get back, knock on the door, Jezebel's still queen. She still loves Baal. She's still trying to kill me. I failed. You know what's hard, folks? It's really hard when, when you try and you try and you don't see the results you expect. Yes, it's hard, isn't it? You know, you, you, you ever just really try to invest in your family and, you know, do the right thing with your finances and it just doesn't work out like you thought it was going to. And, and, and it's real easy to get disillusioned. It's easy to get discouraged, okay? And, and let me tell you, even the great men of God struggle with that. There's, I like the story of Moses. All right, Moses, similar to Elijah, saw all kinds of great things from God, didn't he? You know, all the plagues, then, then the Red Sea, the sea parting. Isn't that cool? That's cool, you know? Walking through, Pharaoh's army destroyed. They go out and into the wilderness. We got nothing to eat. God feeds them with manna. I mean, breakfast on the patio every morning. That is awesome, okay? God had done incredible things, but you know what kept happening? The children of Israel kept complaining. They kept being unsatisfied. They kept being, un, you know, and Moses would, would call out to the Lord and God would provide, and, and, and then they just kept, they kept not trusting God. That, that, got, that got hard on Moses. In fact, in Numbers chapter 11, after the people have been complaining about they don't like manna, they want something else. Verse 14, he says, I'm not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Everybody's always wanting God to kill him, you know? If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my rest. You know, I, I mean, we joke about that, but have you ever felt like, man, I just don't want to go on. You know, I, I just, I'm done. No, maybe not. I hope you haven't. But, but Moses did, and Elijah did. I mean, just such discouragement over things that's not being like we want them to be and not having the, the results we expect. It was like, God, I'm just done. And, and that's exactly where Elijah's at right now. Now, let's talk, about, let's talk about this emotion of fear. Verse 3, and he was afraid. I think this fuels what he does, okay? And so we need to talk about it. And, and it's significant because... You have to wonder, why is he afraid? He wasn't afraid yesterday. You know, he went up against 450 prophets of Baal, and, and he wasn't afraid yesterday. You know, they're, they're all surrounding him. You know, if, if God didn't answer from heaven, he's a dead man. And, and so why today, after a knock on the door from a wicked king, a wicked queen, why, why, why is he afraid today? You, you know what I've noticed about fear? Fear ebbs and flows based on what the big thing in your life is, Okay. Whatever's huge in your life, whatever's big in your life, that, that tends to fuel what you're afraid of. And, and what you're afraid of is a significant thing, okay? It, it really determines, to, to a great extent, what your relationship with God is like, 
okay? Let me try to explain that, okay? Let me say it again, okay? What you fear tells a lot about what's in your heart, about how you feel about God, how you feel about faith, okay? Uh, let me give you an example. Let's say that my kids, um, my kids, let's say my kids are here at church, and let's say one of them does something that breaks a rule, okay? A clear rule. They know, they're gonna, they, know they weren't supposed to do it, but they do it anyway. And let's say they have a friend with them, and the friend says, hey, I think your dad saw you do that. What if, what, if my, what if my kid says, ah, it's not a big deal. Dad's preaching. He's tired. He's not going to do anything. And then they say, I think your mom saw you do that. All of a sudden, they start weeping, you know. And they're on the floor just crying out for mercy, you know. They run up and they grab hold of the altar, you know, praying that God would protect them. Okay. All of a sudden, we learn something, don't we, about the relationship dynamics there? Don't we, don't we learn something about what the big deal in their life is if, if they respond that way? And in the same way, what, what you get fearful about, tells something about your heart. It tells something about, about you. And there's lots of places in the Bible where God tells people, hey, it's a sin for you to be afraid of this thing. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. God says, don't fear what these people fear. Don't, don't, don't be in dread of what they're in dread of. Verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary. Whoa, I missed it. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Isaiah says, don't, don't fear those people. You fear God. Je- Jeremiah chapter one, verse eight says, do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Matthew chapter eight, the disciples are out in a storm, okay? They're out on a boat uh, on the Sea of Galilee. They're in a storm. Waves are coming over the side of the boat and, and, and they think they're gonna perish. And so they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, we're perishing, save us. And you know what Jesus asked him? It's interesting. Verse uh, 26, Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Now, doesn't that seem like an obvious question? You know, an obvious answer, you know? Waves are coming over the boat, Jesus, you know? Boat is filling with water. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a good swimmer. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Now, what, what's at the heart of Jesus' question? Well, notice the next part of it. Oh, you of little faith. You see, fear and faith are compared there, aren't they? When it, when it, when it, whenever your fear is, is high, your faith is low. Whenever your faith is high, your fear is low. Okay, they, they, they go together. And, and basically what Jesus is saying is, look, the creator of the universe is in the boat with you, okay? The, the one who sustains the winds and the rain is in the boat with you. The, the, the one who controls the water, the one who controls life and death is in the boat with you. And so what should you be fearing? Jesus, not, 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 not the winds and the rain. And so fear is a big deal. Uh, what you fear is a big deal. Now, Hold that thought in your mind, okay? We're gonna come back to that. We're gonna come back to what's the big deal in, in Elijah's life right now? What, what's, what's big in, in his heart, okay? We're gonna come back to that. First of all, let's look at how, how, how God responds, okay? So Elijah, um, he's afraid, he runs for his life, he sits under the broom tree, he says he wants to die. Okay, how does God respond to that? Well, let me tell you how, first of all, God does not respond. God doesn't say anything about Jezebel. Okay, now, now what's the problem? Jezebel, okay? And it's interesting in this entire passage, as you heard Jacob read that in the 18 verses, God doesn't say anything about Jezebel. Now, God will deal with Jezebel. You know, we'll talk about that later. But God doesn't say anything about it to Elijah. Now, you know why that's interesting to me? Is because there's really two things here, two, two, two ways. When, whenever you've got something overwhelming in your life, as you go to the Lord, God's gonna do one of two things. God is, God's either gonna take that thing away. That's what, that's what we all want him to do. Or often, God's not gonna take it away. God is gonna change you. Okay, and, and that's what he does with Elijah. He, you know, he doesn't say, "Oh, hey, Elijah, don't be afraid, man. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go, you know, fire from heaven, Jezebel. You know, I'm, I'm gonna take care of her." God doesn't say that. 
Uh, God does take care of her, but he doesn't say that to Elijah. What, what God says to Elijah is God begins to work in his life. Many of you are familiar with, with Paul's situation in 2 Corinthians 12 where he has a thorn in the flesh. You ever heard of that? That story where, where the apostle Paul has that thorn in the flesh. And, and in verse 8, he comes to the Lord and three times he, he prays, Lord, take this thing away, take this thing away, take this thing away. Remember what God does? God does not take it away. But rather in verse 9, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You know what God tells Paul? He says, Paul, I'm not going to take this thorn away, but you know what I am going to do? I'm going to give you grace to handle it. My grace. It's sufficient. You know what sufficient means? It's going to be enough. Paul, I'm, I'm going to give you the strength, the power, the grace, the love, the mercy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you what you need, and it's going to be enough for you. <clears throat> That's exactly what God does for Elijah. So, so God didn't take Jezebel away. You know what he does? He ministers to Elijah. How does God minister to Elijah? Number one, God, God ministers to his physical body. I think it's significant in verse um, five, okay, that it says, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lie down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. This is Ed Evans' favorite passage. He tells Marilyn this all the time. And he tries to use it as a life verse that he needs to be able to lay down, sleep. And when he wakes up, there should be a cake at his head and he, and he eats and then he lays down again and sleeps. And when he wakes up, there should be another cake. And uh, I think that's actually taking it out of context. But what I do want you to see about that is that is that God is ministering to Elijah's physical body. You know, a lot of times we think God doesn't care about our bodies. All he cares about is our soul. That's not true. God cares about our body. You, you know what needs to happen sometimes when you're overwhelmed and discouraged and fatigued and depressed and you know, sometimes it's because you've been working 90 hours a week and God says, hey, remember the Sabbath day? You know, remember that whole rest thing that I talked about? You know, what you need to do right now is you need to rest. I mean, sometimes it's just simply our physical body is not able to keep up with what, what, what we're trying to put on it. And so Elijah rests, God gives him food. And, and then he goes to the Mount of God. He goes to Mount Horeb. Now, many of you, if you know your Old Testament, you're gonna know that Mount Horeb is really significant. It's a significant place. It was where Moses was commissioned by God. Remember that whole burning bush thing ha happened at Mount Horeb, okay? So Elijah goes to this place where, where God is, is known to have revealed himself to, to the great men of God. And, and then God asked Elijah two times one question, okay? Whenever God asks something twice, we know it's significant, okay? Two times one question, and here's the question. Verse nine, what are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, he asked it again in verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, please do not think that God has, lacks information, okay? God, it's not like God, you know, left Elijah in Israel and he's supposed to be ministering there and God went to make a sandwich. He turns around, Elijah's at Mount Horeb and he's like, whoa, what happened here? How, how, you know, why are you here? Not, that's not what this is about, okay? God, God asks questions like that so that we will consider why are we where we are? Why are we doing what you're doing? You know, hopefully you come to church and, and hopefully you sense in your spirit God asking sometimes, why are you where you're at? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living the way you're living? You know, remember in Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve take, take of the fruit that God told them not to take of and, and immediately they're overwhelmed with guilt and, and, and they, they hide in the garden, they cover themselves with leaves. You remember the question God asked him when he comes into the garden? Where are you, Adam? Now, it's not like God's looking around. Where is Adam? I can't, elephant, giraffe, where's that? That's not it, is it? Well, what, is, what does God want? He says, Adam, you need to think about where you're at. Why are you where you are? What are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? 
And, and so God asked that of Elijah twice. Elijah answers the same way two different times. Again, I don't think God is, is hard of hearing. God's asking that question for a purpose. You know what's interesting? Every other time in Elijah's life, he would have answered that question. Okay, the question is, what are you doing here? He would have answered that question in one way. God, because you told me to be here. Every other time. You start in chapter 17. Why is he with Ahab? Because he has the word of the Lord. Verse two, why, why is it the brook, brook uh, Cherith? Well, the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and go eastward to the brook Cherith. Why is he in Zarephath? Well, in verse eight and nine, the word of the Lord came to him. Arise and go to Zarephath. Why does he go back to Ahab and Mount Carmel? Well, in chapter 18, verse one, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year and said, go show yourself to Ahab. Why does he do all that stuff at Mount Carmel? Well, in verse 36 of chapter 18, he says, I've done all these things at your word. Every other time in Elijah's life, he he is where he is because God told him to be there. This particular time, he doesn't respond. He doesn't act out of faith. He acts out of fear. And so God asked the question, what are you doing here? I didn't tell you to come here. You're not, you're not, you're not supposed to be here, Elijah. What, what, what are you here? How does, how does Elijah answer that question? Well, as we unpack how Elijah answers that question. Here's what I want you to do, okay? This little exercise, all right? This is, this is participation sermoning, okay? What I want you to do is I want you to figure out in your head what's the big deal in Elijah's life, okay? Remember we talked about, how do you know what you're afraid of? What's the big deal? What's the big thing? What, what, what are you thinking about? What are you musing about? What's going on in your head, okay? What's going on in your heart? That, that, that tells a lot about what, what, what the big factor of your life is, okay? Notice how Elijah answers this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he answers that way twice, okay? Now, now as I read that, what, what's, what's going on? What, what's, what's Elijah thinking about? What's the big issue in his life? Here, this will help. What does he leave out? What does he say nothing about? He says nothing about anything that God has done. God just, God just rained fire from heaven. He didn't mention that. God, God just provided miraculously for him for three and a half years, day, every, day after day. 356, 56. How many days in a year? 365. 365 days a year, God provided for him. Does he say anything about that? No. 450 prophets of Baal executed yesterday. Does he say anything about that? No. Does he say anything about what God has done? No. What does he talk about? Well, he talks about his own personal sacrifices, doesn't he? You see that? <clears throat> I have been very jealous for the Lord, God of hosts, you know? I, even I, only am left. He talks about his personal hardships. They seek my life to take it away. He talks about the failures of other people, how everybody else has let him down. Are, 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 you, guys, are you guys hearing this? Here's a recipe for despair, okay? So, those of you who want to despair in life, you know, let's, let's just follow this, okay? If you, if you want to be despairing and depressed, then what you need to do is, first of all, don't, don't think about what God has done. Don't let that be a big thing in your life, okay? Rather, highly emphasize all you have done, okay? All this stuff you do for everybody, how you wait on everybody, how you're always serving everybody, how you're always you know, giving to everybody, how, how you, your hardships in your life, and focus on how everybody else has let you down, how nobody else ever does anything and you're the only one that ever does. That's a recipe for depression, isn't it? Right there. I mean, you, you'll get there quick. You could probably get there in 10 minutes if you just start doing that, okay? 
you know? And, and, and that's, man, that holds true in, in my own life. And when I think about, as I counsel others who are depressed, almost always it goes just like that. Well, let me tell you what I have done and how I have sacrificed and how I have done this and how nobody else has done this. And it, you, you, know, you know the problem with the Woodward economy? I figured this out the other day. Some of us came in my office and, and, and it clicked because I've heard this from probably two or 300 people in Woodward. They are the only person that does anything at their work, Okay. That's what's wrong with the Woodward economy. We've got all these businesses out here, and, and then, you know, some of them employ three, four hundred people, and there's one guy doing all the work, okay? Well, obviously, that's why we're not thriving. That's, that's the, I need to run for office. That's the problem with America. We've got companies, one guy's doing something, and everybody else, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not doing anything. You're saying you don't believe that. I have heard personal testimony, my friends from a ton of people in Woodward that that's exactly what's happening. You know what's wrong with families? I've, I've heard personal testimony from families that they are the only ones that do anything in their family. They, they do everything, okay? Now, you know, I'm saying that in jest. I, I preach this. At the end of the first service, I had a lady leave, and she said, I know you were joking about that. That's true in my house. I'm the only one that does it. I mean, she's still, she's still backing it up, you know? And her husband was right there. She said, I'm the only one that does anything, Maybe, maybe it might be true. I scolded the guy. I don't know. Here's the point. You know what's going on with Elijah? He is magnifying the wrong things, and he is minimizing the wrong things. You know what you ought to magnify, born-again believer? I mean, all of us at any point in our life, we, why, what, are you, what are you doing here? Okay? We, if you're born-again believer... It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You know what you ought to be able to say? You ought to be able to say, well, you know what? This is what's true about my life. I'm a sinner, and I'm broken, and I deserve hell. But if, you can only say this if you're a believer, by the way. But Jesus Christ came, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and he was brutally beaten and tortured and crucified so that I might be united to him by faith, and so that his righteousness, which I have done nothing to deserve, is put in my account, and my filth, my sin, is put on him, and I am joined to him forever and ever, and he is mine, and I am his, and I will be with him forever, and he's going to take care of me. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's true for every believer. That ought to be the big thing in your life. So many times, that's not the big thing. You know where that's at? That's way down here, you know? The big thing is, I'm the only one that does any of my work, you know? Well, did, did Jesus die? I know Jesus died for me, but that's beyond the point. Put that away. I, I got to go out on location again. You know, I mean, a lot of times the big thing in our life is not God. And, and then when, when that happens, you know what we start doing? We start magnifying everyone else's faults and and we start minimizing anything that anybody else is doing. Listen to what Elijah says. I, even I, only am left. Is that true? That he's the only faithful guy left? Well, what, what about this guy over in chapter 18? His name's Obadiah. He actually works for Ahab. And when Jezebel starts killing the prophets, in verse 13 of chapter um, 18... 
says, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men in the, and he's talking to Elijah, by the way, a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? I mean, here's a guy that, that is in Ahab's cabinet who when Jezebel starts killing the prophets, she gets a hundred of them, he gets a hundred of them, and, and he puts them in two different caves and he feeds them for three and a half years. That guy seems like a pretty good guy to me. <laughs> what about Elisha, who's getting ready to be appointed to take Elijah's place. He, he's a pretty good guy, you know, pretty faithful to the Lord. What, what about in verse 18 when, when God himself says, I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that's not kissed him. Okay, now I'm just counting here, 7,000, Elisha's 7,001, Obadiah's 7,002, okay? I can count 7,002. What, is, what, is, what does Elijah say though? I, even I only am left. Let's not pick on him too much. We do the same thing, don't we? Nobody does anything but me. Nobody does. No, nobody reaches out in that church but me. Nobody ministers but me. Nobody prays but me. Have you noticed how many times Elijah says "I" in his answer? I have been jealous for the Lord. I, even I, he even says it twice. Emphasize. I, even I. Only, you know, when, when the big thing in your life is you, that's a recipe for despair, isn't it? Pride only fuels our sense of loss and disappointment and despair. All right, what's God do? <clears throat> Man, we're out of time. <clears throat> I'm still going to tell you, though. What's God do? Well, God reveals himself. That's really what Elijah needs. God reveals himself. And, and how does he do it, though? And this, this is significant, okay? Uh, first of all, God sends a wind, okay? And the wind, I mean, we know wind. We're, we're, we're wind people, aren't we? we? We understand wind. But this is, this is a wind. The wind rips apart the mountain. It's ripping rocks off of the mountain, okay? It's a big wind. But then, you know what the Bible says? The Lord wasn't in the wind. And then there's an earthquake. We know about earthquakes, too, don't we? Yeah, I haven't felt one yet, but they're here. Uh, the earthquake, shh shakes the mountain, okay? Rocks are falling, things are tearing apart. It says the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. There's a fire, okay? Elijah's in the cave and the fire's blazing outside. You can probably feel the heat off of it. The Lord was not in the fire. And then it says there is a still, small, a low whisper. Whisper. God's in the whisper. That's unexpected, isn't it? You'd think God would be in the wind or the, the earthquake or the, the fire. God's in the whisper. What's the point in that? God, God is saying to Elijah, look, just because I don't show myself in the way you expect does not mean that I'm not here. What, what did Elijah expect? Elijah expected to go back and for Jezebel to, to come and say, you know what, I've repented of my sins, put my faith in the true God. I'm really sorry about everything, you know. Would you come over for dinner? That's not what happens. But does that mean that God's not working? You know, a lot of times we, we get really discouraged. You know why? Because things aren't happening like we expect. We have this in our head that says, okay, if God works, then it's going to be this way, right? And it's usually the obvious way, right? And, and when that doesn't happen, you know, what, you know what we're tempted to do? We're tempted to say, well, you're not working. Just because it's not in the obvious way does not mean that God's not working. Listen, God, God didn't take care of Jezebel like, like Elijah thought he would. God takes care of Jezebel. Okay? 
He gives a little hint here when he says, uh, I want you to go appoint Haziel and, and Jehu and Elisha. Man, that guy Jehu, have you ever read anything about him? Jehu, let me, let me tell you a story real quick. Here, here's some of his accomplishments. He shoots Ahab uh, through, through the back in the chariot on a long shot uh, as, as Ahab is fleeing. Ahab's dead. Okay, he goes to Jezreel. Uh, Jezebel paints herself all up, gets all you know, gussied up, comes out to the window and says, Hey, Jehu, you know. Uh, Jehu just says, Hey, you, you, throw her down. They throw her off the balcony. By the time he goes in to eat his hamburger and comes back out, there is nothing left to bury of Jezebel, Okay. Ahab, Jehu goes and kills every, every heir of, of Ahab. Everybody in Ahab's family is, is, is annihilated by Jehu. And then he gets all the Baal worshipers in the temple of Baal. He tricks them, gets them all in there, and then slaughters all of them, tears down the temple of Baal, and makes it a public toilet. Uh, true story. You read it in the Bible. Okay? Was God, was God dealing with, yeah, I think God did a pretty good job of dealing with it, okay? But it wasn't in the way that Elijah thought he was going to deal with it. Just because it's not how you think it ought to be doesn't mean God's not working. Final thing here, what, what, is, what does God do? Uh, he, he tells Elijah to get back to work. Verse uh, 15, the Lord says to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint this guy, anoint this guy, anoint this guy. Um, he, he puts him to work. Is that significant? And I think it is. Uh, my favorite verse, whenever anybody comes in my office and, and, and we talk about despair, depression, those are real things. Uh, I always turn to Isaiah 58. I don't have time to read the whole thing for you. Let me read two verses, okay? 10 and 11. If, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. You know what that implies? It implies the person who's, who's, who's asked to do this is in darkness and gloom. And what does God say? He says, when you pour yourself out for the hungry, when, when you meet the need of the afflicted, then, then your light's gonna shine. Verse 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places, make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You know, one of the healthiest things to do when you're in a state of depression, it is to rise up, not run out in a field, get under a tree, and ask God to kill you. I'm always afraid God will take me up on stuff like that. But I think a better thing to do is to get up and by faith begin to take steps to serve others and to do the mission of God then your light will rise. Aren't you glad? Let's not be too hard on Elijah. Probably most of us have been there, haven't we? Let's not be too hard on him. And and let's be thankful today that God is so gracious that even when we are despairing and even when we do say things we don't mean and even when we do want to quit, God deals very tenderly with us, doesn't he? Let's magnify the right things. Let's, Let's think the right things. Let's... Let's, let's be willing to trust God that even though it's not going just like we planned it, maybe his plan is better. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you in, in the times when we uh, feel despairing, feel depressed, feel discouraged. Uh, God, I pray that, that you would help us to magnify the right things in our life. And God, help us to minimize the right things, God. I pray that, that you would, Lord, just give us faith to trust that that you're at work. Even when we can't see it, even when it's not how we expect, God, you're at work. Lord, we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.